0: Welcome to the Holberg Debate.
1: Please, Ambassador Bolton, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with all of you today, even if only uh, virtually, uh, and it's a great pleasure and a great honor to uh, to be a participant. I thought, uh, from my perspective, uh, although I think the answer to the debate question is uh, quite easy, uh, it is a pipe, global stability is a pipe dream, uh, that that the, the, the most uh, interesting thing to do first would be to talk about some of the threats to that stability, at least as I see it from the perspective of the United States. And I'd like to distinguish between uh, threats at the strategic level, uh, which uh, are long-term and necessarily complex. Uh, and threats at the more immediate level, which uh, are uh, more imminent, uh, some would say more dangerous in the short term, no less complex in their origins or their, uh, their effects, but which tend to crowd out the more strategic questions, which I think is always dangerous. But at the strategic level, I think there are two principal global threats to the United States and and therefore to global security. Uh, The first is China, and the second is Russia. China, I think, is the uh, existential question for the West, for the industrial democracies as a whole uh, during the 21st century. Uh, it is pursuing uh, domestic and international policies that I think are wholly antithetical to our interests and values. Just looking at China domestically, I, I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as a communist country anymore. I think it's just a good old-fashioned, thoroughly authoritarian country uh, for its people. Uh, it's uh, created social metrics so that the state can rate each of its citizens. Uh, It has pursued policies of cultural genocide against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province and its repressed religious freedom uh, throughout China. Uh, As we speak, it is violating the joint Sino-United Kingdom agreement concerning the handover of Hong Kong, which committed Beijing to a 50-year Uh, obligation to maintain a one country, two systems policy. Uh, Just yesterday, it jailed four of the most significant leaders of the democratic movement in Hong Kong. It's clearly moving uh, to suppress any incipient freedom of thought uh, outside the Communist Party. Uh, And that's just what it does on an average day domestically. Internationally, it's engaged in Uh, hostile, near belligerent activity in the East China Sea, uh, particularly aimed at Taiwan, a thriving democracy uh, just off its coast. Uh, It is uh, in the process of trying to make the South China Sea a province of China. It's actually declared a provincial capital. Uh, It is building air and naval bases Uh, that is constructed on islands and rocks and reefs that on a good day are only a few inches above the waterline, attempting to turn what are now international waterways uh, into a Chinese lake. Uh, It has uh, attempted to intimidate countries with which it shares a land border in Southeast Asia and most recently, just in the past few months, along the line of actual control with India in military clashes. Uh, it is currently building its first blue water navy in 500 years. It has one of the world's uh, largest and most sophisticated cyber warfare programs. It is building area denial and anti-access weaponry to keep uh, navies uh, well away from its coastline. Uh, it is uh, has an active anti-satellite program intended to blind satellites in Earth orbit. Uh, and it has engaged in a uh, substantial buildup of its uh, nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities. Uh, It has attempted to use the rules of a liberal international system uh, entirely to its own advantage, uh, pursuing a mercantilist trade policy within the World Trade Organization. It has weaponized what are apparently commercial uh, companies like Huawei and ZTE Uh, in an effort essentially to take over the fifth generation telecommunication systems being constructed all over the world. Uh, This is not a China that, as some of its advocates have said, is engaged in a peaceful rise uh, to become a responsible stakeholder in world affairs. Uh, The predictions that were made about China – uh, after Deng Xiaoping began his significant reforms in the mid 1980s, have not come true in the international sphere, uh, as I've described, uh, or in the domestic sphere. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, China has not moved in anything like a more democratic direction. Xi Jinping is the most authoritarian leader of China since Mao Zedong. That's what we confront. And uh, to ignore this reality, uh, I think, is to invite. Uh, further challenges from China and further threats to international peace and security. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, is a declining country. It's a one-horse economy, uh, oil and natural gas. But since it has uh, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, uh, it's a country that has to be taken quite seriously, and I think we do. Uh, It uh, is under the rule of another authoritarian leader, uh, Vladimir Putin, who I think is playing uh, unfortunately, playing a weak hand very well. He has made it clear he thinks that the collapse of the Soviet Union was what he called uh, about 15 years ago the ge- greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Now, uh, I think it was one of the best ways you could imagine to end the 20th century. Putin obviously has a different view, and he's tried to reestablish uh, Russian hegemony in much of the space of the former Soviet Union uh, as well as trying to re-establish uh, Moscow's influence uh, in throughout the throughout the Middle East I think how the West uh, handles Russia over the next few years is going to be extraordinarily important uh, particularly in Europe and the Middle East but uh, obviously uh, globally as well and we've just seen in uh, uh, in, uh, in, in recent months uh, with the turmoil in Belarus, uh, and with Russia's uh, active role first in helping to stoke and then in helping to get a ceasefire of the conflict in, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, Russia and China have their own complex dynamic. Perhaps we can explore that uh, in the questions. But these are, uh, I think, at the strategic level for a long, long time ahead – Uh, the major threats that we face, and the major threats to global stability. Now at the more imminent level, I think the two greatest uh, uh, categories of threats are those caused by uh, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, and biological, uh, and the uh, sometimes related threat of uh, international terrorism. Uh, With respect to the Uh, biological and chemical weapons threat. It's often not discussed. It's worth considering and remembering that those weapons are often called the poor man's nuclear weapon. We have seen in the United States and Europe, really around the world, uh, something not dissimilar to what a biological weapons attack could look like uh, in our experience with the coronavirus pandemic. It has demonstrated that we are not prepared. Uh, We have not responded well. We can debate uh, who's responded worse or who's responded better. But at least as the United States approaches 300,000 deaths estimated from the coronavirus, uh, by whatever standard, it's utterly unacceptable. Uh, But I think, uh, unfortunately, the rogue states of the world, the troublemakers, have seen uh, our reaction to it. And uh, uh, the pursuit of biological weapons, uh, I'm afraid, has become... Uh, much more uh, something that uh, that terrorist groups and rogue states alike would be interested in. The nuclear proliferation threat continues uh, in North Korea and Iran especially. Uh, both of these states remain strategically committed to pursuing deliverable nuclear weapons. Uh, and as we wrap up another presidential term in the United States, we can report four more years of failure uh, to stop uh, either North Korea or Iran from uh, achieving the objective that they've been after for so long. Uh, this is the kind of uh, uh, of uh, depressing uh, development that uh, once led uh, Winston Churchill in the 1930s to talk about what he labeled the confirmed unteachability of mankind. Faced with incipient threats, uh, countries uh, decide not to take significant action, they watch the threats grow, they tell themselves they can handle the threats, they keep telling themselves that right up until the threats become palpable, uh, and then it becomes too late. And the trouble, particularly in the field of nuclear proliferation, of course, is that as each new rogue state gets a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, or is seen to be pursuing it actively, it inspires others to do the same. I would argue that the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, which allowed uh, that regime uh, to continue to pursue uranium enrichment and plutonium reprocessing, so-called for peaceful purposes, uh, inspired others in the region to pursue their own, quote-unquote, peaceful nuclear programs uh, against the day when they would face a nuclear Iran. So proliferation, I think, remains uh, one of the gravest threats that we face, and uh, especially when you consider the possibility of combining it with international terrorism, uh, th- this is something that uh, that we must continue to be worried about. The wave of radical Islamism that swept over the Middle East, beginning with the Islamic uh, revolution in Iran in 1979 has not receded. Uh, we see today in Afghanistan the Taliban continuing to make gains, possibly opening that country back up to uh, become a haven for ISIS, al-Qaeda, or other terrorist groups. Uh, across the Middle East, we see Iran supporting uh, terrorist groups like Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthi terrorists in Yemen, uh, and engaged in conventional military activity in Iraq and Syria. Uh, that supports these terrorist activities. We see Libya still engulfed in uh, internecine conflict uh, nearly a decade after the overthrow of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Um, and the the uh, in uh, on the streets of Europe uh, and in America, we still see terrorist activity being undertaken. That last thing any of us want to see is another 9-11, but I am worried that as these conditions continued uh, in, the, in the Middle East, unaddressed, unanswered, uh, that uh, we're laying the groundwork for uh, more to come. Uh, and just one last point uh, before I conclude. In, in the Western Hemisphere, something obviously of particular interest to the United States Uh, I am uh, unhappy to have to report that the authoritarian regimes in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba remain in place, uh, what I once called the troika of tyranny, supported by outside forces uh, like Russia, China, and Iran, oppressing their people in the case of Venezuela, driving them to the level where the uh, president of the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross told me uh, uh, last year that. having visited Venezuela and visited its hospitals, uh, he said he hadn't seen worse facilities since his last visit to North Korea. This is a great tragedy for the Western Hemisphere, may not be a threat to global peace and security, but it's certainly a dismal uh, uh, picture uh, here in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I am um, not as pessimistic actually as I sound in the assessment. I think that uh, uh, ultimately, Uh, if the industrial democracies uh, retain their cohesion and their will to survive, uh, that all of these threats can be overcome. Uh, But I think anybody who thinks it will be done easily uh, and quickly uh, is unfortunately badly mistaken. But thank you very much again for the opportunity to be with you. I look forward to the discussion and to responding to your uh, questions and observation. Thanks again. Thank you, Ambassador Bolton. Uh, look, I, I, it was a fascinating uh, Marxist description of the past uh, hundred years or so of history, and uh, I recognize it well. I don't, I don't uh, recognize it happening in the United States. I don't recognize uh, uh, much of the analysis. Uh, I do think there are a lot of uh, negative uh, uh, economic uh, circumstances that the United States faces today, uh, caused by. Uh, uh, erroneous policies we've we've pursued for for a long time in in this country. Uh, I consider myself a deficit hawk. I don't like federal government deficits. I don't like the size of the natural debt. Uh, I think that uh, we've been we've been going down the wrong road there for a long time. Uh, but it's a very difficult one to come back on. I I think the. Uh, the, the importance of economics in international affairs can't be, can't be doubted, but I'm not a Marxist myself, and I don't buy the argument that everything is based on economics, and as Marx said, that the superstructure that we look at of politics, religion, society, uh, is all based on economic factors. I think uh, it's, a, it's a much more complex... Uh, uh, analysis that's required. I don't think historical materialism of the Marxist kind really brings you very far. Uh, But I do think that where economics uh, plays a critical role uh, uh, is, is demonstrated by China, which Uh, owes much of its uh, prosperity to uh, four decades of theft of intellectual property from the West as a whole. This is a a view shared not just by a majority in the United States, but I think uh, across Europe, Japan, Australia, Singapore, pretty much most of the rest of the world. And I think that that's not that's not something that we dreamed up. The Chinese have been doing this with incredible success. I mean, you have to admire them. They steal intellectual property. They don't have to spend money on research and development. They they recreate the product, sell it back into the markets of the producers they stole it from, and undercut them with state subsidies and uh, and insurance that uh, that allow them to come to dominate the market. Uh, I I think we should all press China to give up its. Policy of stealing intellectual property, but I'm not optimistic they're going to do it. Why, why should they? Uh, it's a uh, it's proven a very successful business model for them. So while they're not Marxist anymore, like Professor uh they are authoritarian,s and and they constitute a threat. And that that's uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, I guess, for the moment. Is stability
0: instability necessarily a bad thing? I'll. Turn that question to Ambassador Bolton first.
1: Well, I don't. I don't think it's a question whether instability is good or bad. Instability is inevitable. Uh, the, the 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 periods of stability we've seen in the world come uh, through throughout history have come in a variety of different ways. Sometimes uh, because of an effective uh, uh, balance of power, uh, and sometimes because of. Um, uh, of dominance of one power or another. But but it's uh there's there's been no example where uh the stability is permanent and it's uh, uh it's a it's a problem that uh, evolves and changes to be sure. Uh, we've been in the 20th century through three great, uh, uh, confrontations, uh, two hot world wars, one cold, one cold world war, uh, that fortunately the, uh, partisans of freedom have prevailed in, uh, each time, uh, but, uh, but there's no guarantee. It's not that, uh, anybody's seeking confrontation. It's the fact that others seek confrontation with us and, uh, it can come in a variety of forms. Uh, 9/11 certainly took the United States by surprise, uh, and uh, and it and it can happen again. I, so I don't I don't regard stability or instability as inherently uh, having positive or negative moral values. What I'm concerned about, and what I think uh, is the legitimate focus of decision making in the United States. Uh, is how to protect American interests and values in the world uh, together with those of our allies against external forces that uh, that don 't wish us well uh, of which unfortunately throughout history there have been a fair number uh, it was It was a privilege for the United States in its early days to avoid external confrontation uh, largely. To, to seek stability in the Western Hemisphere. Although I think it's a mistake to call that isolationism because while we were doing that, we are we were creating what is today the United States. Uh, as a country today and for the last 100 plus years that's had global interest, it's been our fate to uh, in, engage with the entire world and, and to provide, in my judgment, uh, as much stability as we could through networks of alliances and institutions, some of which have been more successful than others, but which uh, have, uh, have at least given those who want to join in the uh, a common approach that, uh, that we and many others hold uh, to, to see a, a stability or at least to create structures of deterrence against those uh, who would rather structure the world in a different way. Uh, and that may last. It, it may not last. It, it won't last by creating a Bretton Woods with China. We we created recreated one of the Bretton Woods institutions, replacing GATT with the WTO, and the Chinese are busy perverting it. So I think they've given their evidence of what they're up to.
0: Professor or Ambassador Bolton, um, what does that I mean, you opened and talking about short term and then more. Systemic uh, problems in the international system strategic uh strategic threats uh, which result in insecurity and instability would you make differentiation between potential catastrophic uh, and then a more of a garden variety of instability and then periods where or regional patterns of stability are evident in the globe is that a fair characterization that you could agree to
1: well i'd have to say just uh, for myself i'm i'm not much into taxonomy i, I don't i don't uh, d- distinguishing between strategic and tactical is about about as taxonomic as i think you can get because i think there's so much variability in the uh, in, in the issues obviously uh, some uh, threats uh, are significantly greater than others uh, uh, Russia, as an economy, uh, doesn't really have a lot to concern us. I've, I've heard by different measures, and I'm not sure we have good statistics from Russia or China. But the, the Russian economy right right now is roughly the size of the Netherlands uh, or maybe Italy. That's another another comparison I've heard. Um, that that would not amount to a strategic threat under under anybody's definition. But when they have ten thousand or more. Uh, uh, nuclear weapons on hand—that that by definition makes it serious. But I, I'm a, I'm an admirer of Edmund Burke. I'm not not much of a follower of abstractions. I think I think you have to try and characterize the uh, the, the circumstances as you see them in the real world.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: Thank you, um, Ambassador
0: Bolton. I'm going to push you a little bit uh, uh, to move in the economic sphere. Uh, I know that you began your career at USAID, uh, working with McPherson. I actually had the pleasure of teaching a class with him together uh, when he was the president of Michigan State University. Um, But what I want to do is push you. I know that you have a law background, not an economics background, but having been at USAID, a little bit more on your perspective on the question I asked, and maybe a response to Professor Varoufakis.
1: Well, I think I think the record is pretty clear. And, and if it's not, I'm sure the professor will correct me, but but 35 years ago, Deng Xiaoping began uh, uh, an incredible transformation inside China, abandoning Marxist, I guess I shouldn't use that word, but that's what he would that's what he would say. He abandoned Marxist principles. He said it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white, but whether it catch, catches mice. Uh, he said, to be rich is good. And, and he stripped away policies that had, uh, that had been implemented since 1949 to cause enormous destruction, uh, the decentralizing control of the economy, uh, abandoning the mindset that had led to the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s, which caused more human devastation than any other act in known human history, uh, beyond war, beyond actual hostilities. Uh, He uh, tried to claw China back from the catastrophe of the proletarian revolution. Uh, And and he had achieved substantial success across the board. And so the phenomenal economic growth in China, which obviously contributed to averages and levels worldwide uh, was something that uh, I think you can trace almost like a laboratory experiment. What's fascinating now about China uh, is that beginning with Hu Jintao and now continuing with Xi Jinping, uh, all the evidence that I think uh, we can see is that they are uh, abandoning the reforms that Deng Xiaoping brought into place. They're recentralizing control. They're uh, re-imposing uh, 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 constraints and, uh, uh, and limits on what Chinese and foreign uh, businesses can do. I, I think that that uh, will inevitably add to the social strains in China that uh, we still see flowing from the one-child-per-family policy. I don't know how you measure one child-per-family in economic terms, but it was a disastrous uh, uh, concept and its full social effects are still being felt. So, so it, it's the the idea that uh, uh, that somehow we we that w- what we owe what we owe to China is Deng Xiaoping recognizing that Marxism was failing. And I think, uh, and and I will speak as an alumnus of USAID. We've seen economic growth in so many of the countries that AID was present in in. Uh, the Western Hemisphere, in South Asia, uh, and and to Africa in a le- to a lesser extent, uh, unfortunately, uh, that uh, much of the world that Professor Varoufakis has described, uh, I, I don't, I just don't recognize it.
0: Um, what I want to ask about is to what degree does this illiberal turn uh, in these regimes? How does that uh, threaten global stability? And uh, uh, what's the future? I mean, is that a long time future, or are those regimes basically so uh, based on strongmen that when that strongman is gone, they'll be inherently unstable and we'll have a new a possibility for a new regime or not? I'll turn now to Ambassador Bolton to address that issue.
1: Well, uh, I, I guess I'd say a couple things. The first is, uh, f- I think there has been uh, retrogression on the point of the uh, societies that have emerged from from totalitarian past, the former Soviet Union, former uh, Yugoslavia, uh, uh, among others. Uh, and so, I think the the lesson, to, the first lesson to draw there, is that uh, this is at least a partial refutation of the Whig theory of history there's not an inevitable upward progression it just doesn't go on in in in, uh, uh, in sequence you can have as in the case of Russia emerging from a totalitarian society having a brief uh, experience with democracy and then receding back into authoritarianism and I think that's important to understand so that the idea that that you can create uh, what is goes under the term of a rules- based international society uh, inevitably moves from sunlight to sunlight higher and higher it doesn't it doesn't work like that internationally it doesn't work like that domestically now in terms of what uh, whether or not there's a trend you know i i'm I'm reluctant to draw sweeping conclusions from circumstances in different countries that uh, that, that really are quite varied and uh, which may reflect uh, political configurations within those countries at a given time, but which 10 years from now may, may be very different. I, I think there's uh, considerable discontent in Europe, discontent in the United States, um uh, that has been reflected in uh, in in politics in different ways, uh, but I do think that uh, uh, f- that, that this variation is d- does not strike me at the moment as being outside uh, the range within which democratic change occurs in in uh, in, in our societies. So I don't uh, I don't really worry about it. Um, from a strategic point of view. And if I may say so, uh, with all due respect, I think this is more of a European concern. Uh, and it's more of a European concern because of the strains on the European Union. Uh, more than strains, Britain has withdrawn from the European Union. Uh, and, uh, and and so I think that the, the, the issues uh, within countries that are members of the European Union Uh, reflect in the larger debate uh, going on within the Union itself. Uh, And I understand, of course, that this is incredibly significant for Europeans, and ultimately it will be for the United States. But it's a debate because of the circumstances and structures of the European Union that I don't see replicated elsewhere in the world.
0: Aren't they somewhat, though, a threat with especially Turkey for NATO? Which is definitely related to US security.
1: Well, I think we're in the in the in the course of trying to figure out whether Turkey wants to be part of the West or not. I mean I think Erdogan has taken Turkey in a direction completely contrary to the uh, Ataturk Reformation post-Ottoman Empire. Uh, I think he is fully prepared to abandon the secular nature of the Constitution that Ataturk wrote. Uh, And I think he has, hard as this may be, to believe uh, neo-Ottoman aspirations in the Middle East. Uh, His decision to purchase the Russian S-400 air defense system is utterly unjustifiable, contrary to his uh, obligations in NATO. Uh, but here again, I don't necessarily uh, want to draw an ultimate conclusion from that. Turkey has another presidential election in 2023. If it's free and fair, underline if, underline free and underline fair, maybe the Turks will vote in a different direction, certainly. in last year's provincial and municipal elections, they did. Uh, so that's, I mean, Turkey is actually a good example why I, I worry about drawing Uh, overly broad conclusions from insufficient facts. Well, if you wanted to have an experiment, let's take the WTO. I mean, it was in the post-World War II universe of organizations. You had the UN, the IMF, and what was supposed to be the ITO, the International Trade Organization, that uh, was never born. We had the GATT. Instead, we've we've, uh, outlived the GATT. Now we have the WTO. China was admitted in uh, 2000, 2001. Uh, I remember well, uh, it was the universal cry at the time that this will help the reformers inside China. China will conform to international norms in the financial and economic world. It will make them more responsible. They'll be a responsible stakeholder. They'll engage in a peaceful rise. Uh, and I think what we've seen is that uh over the 20 years of Chinese membership, they've systematically manipulated this theoretically pro-free trade organization by pursuing, with enormous success from China's point of view, a mercantilist foreign policy, uh, mercantilist economic policy. So, okay, here they are deeply embedded in the WTO. Um, uh, So how exactly, now that they're in, uh, do, do we use the leverage that we may have because of human rights violations or however you want to characterize it? You can, you can do it on the basis of climate change and tell them they can abandon all their coal-fired plants. That'd be interesting to see. And when they tell us to stuff it, what do we do then? Look, look it was the basic theory from Henry Kissinger to Bob Zelik to the present that increased economic growth in China brought about by Deng Xiaoping's reforms would lead to more responsible behavior by China internationally, which is proven false, and would lead to increased democracy domestically, which is also false. Uh, So, you know, authoritarian societies can last a very long time. That's not necessarily, uh, as they say in uh, financial statements, uh, past performance is no indication of future results. Uh, You can't extrapolate. But I I would respectfully disagree with Professor Varoufakis when he says that democracy uh, advocates are still uh, flourishing in China. Two days ago, uh, my very good friend Jimmy Lai, Uh, was put in jail in Hong Kong again. And the authorities themselves say they're not going to let him out until his trial in April. Uh, I'm very worried. Jimmy Lai's never coming out of jail. Uh, Hong Kong for China is one of the gravest threats that they face. Probably the gravest threat that they face is Taiwan. And so when I hear suggestions that we engage with China and try and work with them. Ask the people on Taiwan what their view is. They just had another free and fair election where they said, we, in effect, we are not going to accept uh, the Beijing view of how relations between China and Taiwan are going to play out. Because among other things, we've seen what you're doing in Hong Kong. And I think the world has also seen how China behaved with the coronavirus pandemic. It is beyond dispute, I think, that China covered up what happened in Wuhan, covered up the extent of the epidemiological consequences uh, of the disease in China, covered up the extent of the economic influences, uh, and by so doing, impeded the ability of the rest of the world to deal effectively with the disease. There's so much we don't know uh, now, that I'm afraid uh, we're, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. This is not a government that I'm prepared to trust with very much. Uh, and when, uh, when, when I say that, often it's met by reminding me of Ronald Reagan's uh, use of the Russian proverb, trust but verify, precisely the coronavirus experience shows the Chinese aren't going to let us verify. So, you can't trust and you can't verify. I would rather take back uh, the reins of uh, our dependency on China. And I think, in effect, that's happening without conscious policy. I think people now see the political risk of doing business in China uh, is much higher than they realized. They should have probably realized it before. But on their own, without government direction, we're seeing an unwinding. a a diminution at the margin of uh, increased investment, an unwinding of some of the existing investment uh, because people will price in the political risk of dealing with the kind of government that we see in Beijing now.
0: Ambassador Bolton, um, you want to make a comment about prospects for a Biden presidency
1: along the lines that... uh... Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, in in part, I think Professor Varoufakis has has a point about the the travails of the Democratic Party. But but let me say first, with respect to the Republican Party, which is my natural home, uh, there is no Trumpism. Because Trump doesn't have a philosophy, doesn't indulge in grand strategy, doesn't really even do policy as we normally understand that. It is all about Donald Trump, uh, and I think uh, what he has been able to do, and it's disturbing. I, I don't, uh, I don't deny it. Is that he has. Uh, persuaded a number of people. He's intimidated a lot of other people, but he's persuaded a lot of people that uh, that, as he said in the uh, 2016 Republican convention, only I can fix it. Now, th- this is a dangerous statement to make, and it's especially dangerous for Republicans. Our our party has always been one of policy over personality, uh, and that's why we're going to have to have a huge conversation. Uh, for once Trump leaves the Oval Office, which he will at noon on the 20th of January. And once that happens, the political dynamic in the United States changes dramatically. For Biden, uh, I don't uh, envy him, his task. I didn't vote for him either, by the way. I wrote in somebody else's name because I, I, I was not going to be happy with a Biden presidency for very different reasons. I, I think uh, Professor Varoufakis is right. I think the Democratic Party is— Uh, in grave danger of splitting uh, uh, as it attempts to govern. And I'm much more optimistic that uh, the Trump influence can be removed from the Republican Party if we win the two Senate seats in Georgia. We'll maintain control of the Senate, definitely not predicted before the election. And we've come within five or six seats of gaining majority in the House of Representatives, an absolutely stunning result. So I think uh, the return of the Republican Party to a reaganesque uh approach uh is is something that with work we can accomplish uh and thanks to the blue collar workers that Trump did bring into the party uh and the uh and the more educated more affluent voters that he pushed out, which we can bring back i think uh and given the travails in the democratic party uh I, th- I think there's a period of uh uh, substantial possibility ahead for the Republicans. I think Biden will be a one-term president. start right, with, with Greece, I, I, the professor, if I heard him correctly, said that he lived in the in Greece at the time of uh, following the fascist coup, which had been uh, inspired by the United States. I have to say... Uh, that's the first time I've heard that. I didn't. I didn't know that was another one we should take credit for. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not aware that we ever inspired a, a, a coup of any kind in Greece. But uh, 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 the the concern that I have for sovereignty is uh, is is not abstract. It's a it's a question about uh, who governs, uh, and for the American people, sovereignty sovereignty has never resided in the government. Uh, you know, the very term sovereignty comes from the sovereign, the monarch, uh, in that sense, is a, is a European creation. For us, sovereignty is uh, is expressly stated uh, in the first three words of the Constitution, we the people, that's where sovereignty lies, that's where legitimacy lies, uh, And uh, and frankly, that's where I'd prefer to keep it. Uh, i think our governmental institutions are problematic enough we struggle in our domestic politics we have our uh, arguments about the proper balance of power the proper role and size of government uh, and uh, and uh, it, it's hard enough for us to uh, to govern ourselves uh, in in that sense the united states remains a developing nation and uh, always will be and i'm actually quite proud of that but what i don't think necessarily follows is that uh, because of uh, increasingly common problems around the world that the solution lies in ceding sovereignty to to international institutions and again I think this is largely a European debate uh, Europeans have gotten very used to ceding sovereignty to Brussels. That they're also very happy to try and get others to cede their sovereignty to, to something else. Uh, I don't see it that way. I understand uh some of the origins of the desire for European Union uh with the the rise of uh fascism in uh, in Germany and Italy uh in in the pre-war uh period. But other other sovereign powers in Europe didn't fail. Britain didn't fail. So I don't buy the argument that sovereignty is part of the problem. I don't think it gives winners or losers. I think a sovereign nation like the United States, uh, through protection of its sovereignty, uh, has given its citizens uh, a measure of liberty and economic security never before seen. Why would I want to change that?
0: Thank you very much, both of you. Um, that was the end of the debate section. So uh, you in the audience, the online audience, we've got a number of questions already. Um, the first question I have here is for both of you. And it says both Bolton and Verofocus at times have played roles of outsiders. Not always deciders, but building new ideas, breaking old ones, creating space for change. Is that correct? Did you regard yourselves as outsiders uh, in your careers? And was that a time of reflection and development uh, and forcing you in new directions or not? Um, And do you recognize that in each other? I'll turn to you first, Ambassador Bolton.
1: Uh well thank you well sure uh you know look uh, my first uh, uh political campaign uh, uh as a 15 year old uh, high school student was for Barry Goldwater for president in 1964 uh, and uh, he got womped in one of the the worst landslides uh, uh, in American history uh but didn't uh, didn't change my view that uh, that he had been correct uh, philosophically and uh uh, I continued along that road. I went to. Uh, I'm a child of the '60s. I'm a baby boomer, and I got my undergraduate uh, education at Yale. If if you want to consider being an outsider, consider being a conservative at Yale in the in the late 1960s. But uh, you know, as the saying grows, I think it it uh, builds your character and uh, and uh, gets you ready for the larger debate yeah i mean Tur- turkey is a source of enormous uh, instability erdoğan is a follower of the muslim brotherhood uh, he he is he's provoking splits within the muslim world he's come very close to uh, uh open warfare with uh, with the syrians uh he's one of the key factors in the uh, ongoing struggle in libya uh it's a i i don't i don't yet believe that Erdogan really represents where the turkish population wants to go as i said earlier that's why i'm looking forward to the 2023 presidential election but uh if he continues down this path uh including purchasing advanced weapon systems from from russia uh he will de facto if not explicitly uh, have separated himself from NATO, from Europe, from the West as a whole. I, as I say, I don't think that's where the Turks themselves want to go, but we hope that they'll have a chance to make that decision uh, in in the next uh, national election. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, this is a question
0: uh, asking just for Ambassador Bolton, uh, so I'll I'll ask it. Use this is quoting from the online uh, questioner. You said in January 2019 that, quote, it will make a big difference to the U.S. economically if we can have American oil companies really invest in and produce the oil capabilities in Venezuela. To what extent do the interests of U.S. oil companies determine U.S. policy on regime change?
1: uh they they didn't determine policy the the oil company we were most concerned about and remain most concerned about in venezuela is citgo where there where the maduro regime continues to hold uh a number of citgo representatives and uh, and the damage they might have done uh to citgo in the united states uh as a result of uh of us recognition of juan Guaido as the interim president uh, what I was referring to there was the was the clear opportunity. If the Maduro regime were uh, were forced to recede, uh, for American and other companies, uh, there would be an enormous opportunity to refurbish the incredibly devastated Venezuelan uh, oil infrastructure. Uh, under 20 years of uh, of socialist rule by Chavez and Maduro, Venezuelan oil production uh went down to a level that today is below the level Venezuela produced in 1946. I just think about that for a minute. Here's one of the potentially richest countries in the hemisphere uh because of corruption, because of the uh the mismanagement uh of uh, Venezuela's oil infrastructure is just crumbling in front of the people. They they could see it. That's one reason that their standard of living has declined so significantly. So a Venezuela that could elect its own government, a freer Venezuela, had the possibility of bringing in uh, not just American oil companies, but whoever whoever was interested in bidding to rebuild that infrastructure and re recommence uh, uh, production of Venezuelan oil, which would have a tremendous positive benefit for the people of Venezuela. And I'm sad to say and i i regret to this day that we weren't able to overthrow the maduro government because he's a authoritarian uh and the people of venezuela uh have suffered suffered badly for the last 20 years okay thank you
0: ambassador bolton you want to comment about the role of capitalism and technological development <laughs>
1: Look, 1776 was a very good year. Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, the United States declared independence. The two have gone hand in hand together. Let me just say about capitalism, and, and I, I don't I don't want to make it an extended debate. Capitalism's about freedom. Capitalism isn't some philosophy that's imposed from outside. Capitalism is what Aboriginal peoples all around the world did some grew food, some did other things they exchanged products this is this is uh, uh, this this is the way people live and uh, and and the idea that uh, that, that somehow uh, the, the, the these fundamental human urges uh, are going to be transformed by governmental action into something else, whether it's for climate change or or, or any other objective. Uh, I just think is uh, is fantasy.
0: What what would you? I mean, if you could rewind the clock or take a time machine back to January, uh, twenty twenty. Uh, what policies should the U.S. or other countries impose? What can we learn from countries that have handled the pandemic well, say New Zealand? I mean, it's an island, uh, and there's the abilities there. But uh, what lessons can we learn from the South Koreas, the Taiwans, uh, the New Zealands, other things? What could the U.S. done differently?
1: Well, South, South Korea is experiencing a substantial spike now. I mean, I think the real lesson derived from Taiwan and New Zealand is be on an island and be able to seal yourself off. In the United States, the the failure initially was, uh, was Donald Trump's uh, unwillingness to listen to what he was being told as early as January. Uh, and this has been reported in The New York Times and plenty of other uh, liberal media sources, uh, he was told in early January that the that the risk uh, was very significant, that coronavirus would come out of China and have a very uh, uh, deadly effect on the United States, certainly medically and quite possibly economically. Uh, and he simply would not hear it. He wouldn't hear it because he didn't want to hear bad news about his friend Xi Jinping. He didn't want to hear bad news about the effect on the Chinese economy at the same time he was trying to sign a significant trade deal, which he did later in January. And most of all, he didn't want to hear bad news about an impact on the U.S. economy, which he at that time saw as his ticket to re-election. So uh, despite some relatively minor steps, uh, roughly three months went by before the United States took it seriously. Uh, and then the response was essentially a shutdown, which, uh, which tanked the economy uh, 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 almost immediately. Uh, Trump, during this entire period, and we're now almost 12 months into it, has not yet, de- and he's obviously not going to, developed a strategy. He has never thought comprehensively about what to do when he created the potential mechanism within the U.S. government to do that uh the uh, coronavirus task force chaired by the vice president uh he made sure it didn't work by attending its briefings in the white house press briefing room because it was great airtime for him until until what was left was pieces of the us government doing what their normal mission would be and the states and local governments trying to do the same so uh you know the answer is uh you, you need to start back at the very beginning i, I think Uh, the the steps, the sometimes contradictory steps that the United States took show there was no comprehensive thinking about it. Uh, And I think some of the steps were over-inclusive, like the uh, continued effective lockdown of the economy. And some steps were under-inclusive, with public health officials at the beginning saying there's no need to wear masks, incredibly, uh, as we look back on it. So there there was failure in many respects. I think the main failure starts with the president. You know, you all know, I'm sure Harry Truman's famous sign uh, on his desk in the Oval Office, the buck stops here. Trump would never think of putting a sign like that on the desk because it's always somebody else's fault. Uh but but I think uh if you if you have to look for root causes, not not taking it seriously at the beginning and not thinking through uh the necessary steps, uh uh, I would put right at the top. Hopefully, the vaccines that have begun to come online will uh, will be the solution to the problem. But but that's still six to nine months away when at least within the United States they would take uh, their full effect. So we have we have a long way to go, and I think a lot more pain to experience.
0: Thank you very much. Um...
1: We're now running close to the end of
0: our time, so I'm going to say, how about two minutes each for closing comments, Uh, and then I think we'll be pretty much out of time after that. So I'll turn first to you, Ambassador Bolton, Uh, if you could final remarks for about two minutes, please.
1: Well, I think it's uh it's uh, very important as we come out of the coronavirus experience uh, in the US and Europe really around the world uh that uh that that we reexamine uh, what went wrong and uh, uh and try and do some preparation in advance for it. Uh it's a uh it it's an experience that uh, I think we didn't have to go through uh with the severity uh, that we did, but I will tell you that every terrorist group and rogue state that uh, that watched what we did, uh, is thinking about uh, why they want biological weapons. Um, uh, we have files from al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Uh, after the overthrow of the Taliban that show they were thinking about nuclear, chemical and biological weapons then. Uh, That's why the proliferation of these weapons of mass destruction has always been a priority of mine. And I think now, uh, along with the nuclear threat, the biological weapons threat uh, is very imminent. Uh, The world will be a dangerous place in the 21st century. Uh, The world's probably always going to be a dangerous place, but the way that you Uh, deal with the threat is not to ignore it and not to say that we can find uh, mutually beneficial ways of uh, overcoming these differences. The way to deal with it is to have adequate structures of deterrence uh, to deal with the threat uh, until it disappears.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much to both of you. Very much appreciate it. And you're right. There are so many themes we didn't touch upon. Uh, Climate change being a very important one that we really didn't adequately touch. There's many, many topics, of course, that we couldn't deal with. I want to thank you. Thank you very much for watching. And thanks for the questions. Appreciate it. Welcome and thank you from Holberg Prize debate. Thank you.